Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble presents an all-new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Our storytellers search every year, this is the fourth production we're doing, uh, for stories that not only are historical in Florida, but also can we look at the people as human beings. We'll look at the history of Payne's Prairie, one of Florida's natural wonders. This is the big basin of the Alatra Sink, and you'll see old postcards from the 1800s people sitting on that big boulder over there, for instance. The British occupation of St. Augustine and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. I sailed with Christopher Columbus on his second voyage to the New World when Puerto Rico was newly discovered. Unfortunately, after Columbus died, I won royal favor with the king for his suppression of the Indian revolts in Hispanola and then Puerto Rico. Aided by bloodthirsty greyhounds, I was able to enslave many natives and put them to work in the gold mines and cultivating the plantations. My wealth grew as well as my royal favor. I was then made governor first in Hispanola, then Puerto Rico. However, Columbus's son filed suit in court seeking possession of all his father's possessions, and he won. At once he moved all his cronies into all the main administrative posts, and I was ousted overnight and forced into early retirement. The king was sympathetic and granted me a patent to explore new territories. That's Anthony Whitsett of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble portraying Juan Ponce de Leon in the all-new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. This dramatic look at the history of Florida will be presented at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa on Friday, August 17th and Saturday, August 18th at 7 p.m. and Sunday, August 19th at 2 p.m. Lady Gail Ryan is founder and artistic director of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble. That group began more than 20 years ago as the Storytellers of Brevard. We got into pageantry a lot, and a lot of the storytellers thought we weren't really telling stories because it's sort of without costumes, without scenery, and, and I have a theatrical background, operatic background, musical background, and I sort of liked all that jazz. So uh, we did get a little bit away from it, but the essence of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble is storytelling. And the reason this is, to me, and so important, is because we can tell stories quickly and get emotions and, and change many stories within a production itself to give, uh, give everyone the uh, idea of life, and uh, of course we keep in mind that stories are the emotion of life, they are the morals of life, and they are the history of man. Stories are life itself, and we, our storytellers search every year, this is the fourth production we're doing, uh, for stories that not only are historical in Florida, but also can we look at the people as human beings, or what happened around them, uh, why they did this, perhaps, but 
not so much that you can't as a person say, oh, I'd like to know more about that. The production of mosquitoes, alligators, and determination changes radically every year with different historical figures from Florida history being portrayed. Lady Gail Ryan says that the presentation is completely new this year. With the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state quickly approaching, she wanted to start this year's production with Juan Ponce de Leon. I know that you're getting ready for 1513, and um, and I sort of want to start with that because the idea, you know, we're, we've been here longer than anybody, the immigrants here. And I, I thought starting with uh, Ponce de Leon and his type of person and why they came here. And it was for gold. And, of course, the miss. And we don't want to tell you about that, but, you know, they came here looking for youth. And as I noticed, as I was driving here, there are a lot of places that can help you, that Botox here, Botox there. But guess what? You're going to get old, period. And uh, so so we just wanted to start with Ponce de Leon. And he didn't quit, quite make it as an immigrant here. Osceola, who was treated badly, but he kept trying to make this his home and stay here. And I believe that our Native Americans always need recognition. Uh, and, and then we just go into different persons who have helped to make this state what it is today. Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination brings to life well-known figures from Florida history, such as Ponce de Leon and Betty Mae Tiger Jumper, but also presents the stories of lesser-known people. Geraldine Hess tells about three siblings from St. Augustine who were known for their elite dinner parties, but mysteriously disappeared. No one is exactly sure where they came from. Some place up north, I suppose. No one knows. In fact, nobody is sure that their last name was Spencer or that their first names were Todd, Sarah, and Sally. The three are somewhat of a mystery, and I guess that's as it should be because their departing was as mysterious as their arrival. The brothers and sister appeared in St. Augustine one day and immediately set up housekeeping in a home they purchased in Villano Beach, not far from the ocean. Oh, it was a large home, five or six bedrooms, and it was well appointed. It doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down a few years ago, but old-timers remember it as one of the most splendid homes in the area. Travis O'Beer portrays Dr. Odette Philippe, also called the Count of Tampa Bay. Philippe was the first settler of what is now Pinellas County. He's remembered for his crossbreeding of citrus plants and his unusual life. He's about a French aristocrat that was uh, the chief naval surgeon to Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte that eventually settled in Tampa Bay, and he had a lot of hardship to go through before he eventually settled there for good. And you're going to hear about the things he went through, such as his wife dying, his uh, homes being destroyed twice, imprisonment by pirates, and so on and so forth. The, he really persevered a lot. He lived to be a ripe old age, which is a pretty fantastic story. In the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Lizzie Seal performs as Jane Fisher, wife of Carl Fisher, promoter, showman, and founder of Miami Beach. I remember our first trip to Miami. Carl loved the climate and the lifestyle. But I was not impressed. I'd never seen flies and mosquitoes that big before, let alone the roaring alligator that we came upon. But Carl said to me, Look, honey, I'm going to build a city here. A city like magic, like romantic places you've read and, and dreamt about but you've never seen. It's going to be a place where the old can grow young and the young never grow old. 
the sort of place that Ponce de Leon dreamt about. Now, most people would have thought that Carl was crazy, but I knew my husband, and when he got in his mind to do something, he knew how to make it happen. Our friend John Collins had run out of money trying to build a bridge to the overgrown land across the bay from Miami, and John deeded 200 acres to Carl, who bought 200 acres of his own, and then he was off. Locals called Carl a fool for pumping all that sand into a swamp, but he built an island. And to attract all his rich friends, he built a swimming casino, tennis courts, golf courses, and polo fields. Dr. Eleanor Galt Simmons was the first and only female physician in Dade County for many years. Dolores Gonzalez portrays Dr. Simmons. She was a, a New Yorker. Uh, she was born before, before the Civil War and became a physician at a time when it was not terribly acceptable to be so. Uh, she got her medical degree and she you know, made a practice for herself, met a, a Captain Albion Simmons, who was, uh, who was a lawyer, a former Army officer, and um, they decided in 1892 to come to Florida because his health was uh, in need of, of recovery. And she came to Dade County um, as their first and only physician, and was that for many years, getting on a horse, going hither and yon to take care of patients. Uh, she and the few handful of doctors of uh, Dade and Broward County at the time had to deal with the typhoid uh, epidemic and the yellow fever epidemic in 1880, 1898 and 1899. Uh, and that's kind of what did her in. She became ill and uh, eventually uh, died a few years later because of complications from that illness. But um, she was a, kind of a pioneer of her time, uh, the only one around. The problem I'm finding is that because I imagine she and her husband had no children, there was not a whole lot of history to find about her. There's no one to carry on her story. So what we find is very, uh, is very limited. She had um, the most famous episode for her is dealing with uh, a criminal. Uh, women who were doctors were also considered not to have enough courage to truly be good doctors because they were women. But there was a shootout, and this man had killed a couple of lawmen and was holed up in a shack all by himself. And uh, she took care of the one injured man and then said, well, I'm going to take care of this man over here. And the others, like the men, were staying down there safe because this man was heavily armed. And she walked right in, took care of him, and even convinced him to surrender. And, you know, and her statement was so much for male courage. You know, I could do the same thing. And, and that, I think that was her main uh, claim to fame. Chief Osceola is perhaps the best-known Seminole Indian from Florida history. In Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Francis Rinaldi tells the story of Osceola from the perspective of his wife. You may have heard of my husband, Osceola. My name is Wewoka. I am his wife. The white man speaks his name, Osceola. I know what you have heard of my husband. History has recorded his escapades as violent acts of revenge. The murder of Agent Wiley Thompson and his companions rank among his most recorded brutal acts. What you do not know is the man who was a gentle husband and father. He was a man who stood with pride and honor among his people. He was a great warrior who loved and provided for his family and our people. He respected Mother Earth beyond all that is good in this world. I remember the day my husband read the words Thomas Jefferson spoke in 1786. 
It may be regarded as certain that not a foot of land will ever be taken from the Indians without their consent. My husband believed that a man's word was sacred. When these words were broken, something inside him cracked. I don't need to go into detail. You know what happened. Treaty after treaty was violated, and in 1830, with President Andrew Jackson's signing of the Indian Removal Bill, things turned bad. All through those days of betrayal, Asiyahola protected me, our children, and our people best he could. He worked diligently to keep peace between our people and the white man. But every man has a breaking point. When Wiley Thompson asked the Seminoles to sign yet another treaty, one that would move us to undesirable lands in the West, Osceola whipped out his knife and stabbed the treaty on the council table. Thompson, angry with my husband's public denouncement of the treaty, had him jailed, with his wrists bound so tightly that he carried the scars to his death. Betrayed once again, my husband pretended to be remorseful, and six days later, Thompson released him. He must have been quite convincing, as Thompson gifted him with a custom-made rifle, a major error on his part, as it turned out. The town of Gator used to be located near Ocala. Now only the town cemetery remains. Cheryl Franz tells the story of the Turner family. Not everyone considered a cemetery a happy place, but Elmer Turner did. He had special reasons. All that was left of the place where he grew up, a community called Gator, was the cemetery. For him, that made it a happy, important place. The Turners represented a significant stage in the evolution of Florida, from a wilderness into an urban state. The first of them came in three covered wagons more than 100 years ago. Their little wagon train did not experience the high adventure, perhaps, that those western pioneers knew in crossing mountains and plains and hostile Indian territories. But there was drama. To hear the rest of the story, don't miss the upcoming performances of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble presents the show Friday, August 17th and Saturday, August 18th at 7 p.m. and Sunday, August 19th at 2 p.m. at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. For more information, visit myfloridahistory.org or call 321-690-1971, extension 205. This is Florida Frontiers. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Dana St. Clair, Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the city of St. Augustine. Spanish colonial history in Florida is rich, but let's not forget that the British were also here from 1763 to 1783, during the Revolutionary War period. East Florida was the 14th colony of the British Empire, and West Florida, with its capital at Pensacola, was the 15th colony when the fires of independence were burning brightly in Philadelphia and Boston, St. Augustine was comfortably loyal to King George III. We were a Tory state. At the end of the war, when the tide changed, and you were a loyalist, a Tory, 
and needed to escape the 13 colonies, you either went north or you came south. Almost overnight, St. Augustine's population increased tenfold. And on the streets, you could see Hessian soldiers, Menorcans, Scotch-Irish, British, residual Spanish, French, African-Americans, Native Americans of many different tribes. You could walk down the street and probably not understand the person next to you. Dana St. Clair is Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the City of St. Augustine. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Also be sure to like our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society, where you can find out what happened on this day in Florida history and much more. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun, and snap! The job's a game! Every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. The Visiting Nurse Association of the Treasure Coast has been active for 37 years. As Janie Gould reports, Anne-Marie McChrystal first learned about home health care while training to be an operating room nurse in Miami. We would make home visits in the outlying areas of Miami. We would take a little black bag and newspaper. If we were going to make four visits, you would fold up four different newspaper pages That would be part of your little black bag. Because when you went into someone's home, the first thing you did was you laid out a double sheet of newspaper on the table because you never knew if that table was very clean, but you always knew that the newspaper was what we considered, quote-unquote, sterile in those days. That's what you put your black bag down on, and that's when you opened up your black bag, your stethoscope, or whatever equipment you were bringing for the day. That's how we plied our trade. Did it matter whether the newspaper had been read or not? I don't think so, but it was mostly just the morning Miami Herald, I think, at the time. I can remember one gal whose little boy was in this mobile home that I was visiting, making this home visit. Her little boy had a tape around his foot, and I said, has he had an infection or something? She said, yes, he cut himself outside on an old can, and I put fat back and a penny on it, and I wrapped it up, and it'll be just fine. I've heard of that as a home remedy. What did you say to the lady? I asked her if I could just untape it, that I had some clean dressings, and could I just look at it? She was very nice. She was expecting another baby. That's why I was there. Nevertheless, I did unwrap it, and I looked at it, and it actually looked like it was healing pretty well. I did put a clean dressing on it, and I told her that heretofore, maybe fat pack and a penny, but if it works, I guess it works. It's an old-fashioned remedy. McChrystal and her husband, Dr. Hugh McChrystal, a urologist, moved to Vero Beach in the mid-1960s. 
There were only 24 physicians in Indian River County, can you imagine? There are over 350 today. A few years later, the late Marion Urchner moved to Vero Beach from Wisconsin, where she had served on a VNA board. She determined that this community could really use a VNA, a home care agency. She put together a group of people and uh, explained the concept of starting a VNA. Now, at that time, the physicians were beginning to not do house calls. They were spending more time in the office. To be perfectly honest, they were very suspect of having nurses take care of their patients in the home. Why was that? Well, I don't know if they thought maybe we were going to steal them away. Of course, we weren't. Or maybe it was just a matter of trust. They couldn't be over our shoulders to make sure that what we were doing was correct. However, I think they realized once we actually started home visits and they could see that what we were doing it was benefiting their patients and they weren't getting all those pesky phone calls at their office and at home from these patients with questions that were important to the patients, but maybe were not as clinically important to the physician. So they started trusting the nurses at the VNA. We got more and more referrals. So the business just began to boom. That was Anne Marie McChrystal of Vero Beach. The VNA got rolling in 1975 after philanthropist Dan Richardson donated $10,000 and the Gulf and Western Corporation did likewise at the behest of company executive Dale Sorensen. In that first year, the VNA had one nurse and one home health aide. Now, with more than 500 associates, it's one of the five largest employers in Indian River County. The VNA made 66,000 home visits last year alone. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. If you drive on I-75 just south of Gainesville, you'll cross over Payne's Prairie, one of Florida's natural wonders. As Bill Dudley explains, Payne's Prairie has also played an important role in Florida history. Writer and nature guide Lars Anderson leads a group of sightseers down a steep trail into the Alachua Sink, a large hole in the ground near the northern edge of Payne's Prairie. But this is, this is the big basin of the Alachua Sink, and you'll see old postcards from the 1800s of people sitting on that big boulder over there, for instance. At the bottom of the trail, water heads toward the sink in a swift-flowing current that since prehistoric times has kept Payne's Prairie from becoming just another shallow North Florida lake. It is completely unique to anywhere here or anywhere in the world. It is just a completely unique area because of the sinkhole here that's created this huge marsh area. Lars Anderson says he first became fascinated by the prairie as a boy in Gainesville in the 1960s. I grew up in the area, and as soon as I was old enough to come out on the prairie and roam around it at will, I fell in love with it, and I spent a lot of my youth roaming around the prairie. Years later, the research to produce an educational tape about North Florida led Anderson to write what may be the first ever book about the prairie, published by Pineapple Press. I realized that Payne's Prairie, besides being this incredible wildlife sanctuary, was also a really, really important place in Florida's history. From the earliest Indians to the Spanish conquest, 
right through the Civil War and the aftermath. It's been a focal point for travel, for wars, for local interests, for outings. Retired University of Florida professor and local historian Ben Picard. Even in the present day, it's become the main tourist attraction in Gainesville. It's no longer an historical or a commercial spot but it is the tourist spot in Gainesville in the area. Nomadic hunter-gatherers roamed the prairie about 12,000 years ago. Later, a group called the Cades Pond people built mounds in the area. The Spanish, who came here in 1539, found Tamuqua Indians living nearby. The prairie became a part of the giant cattle ranch called La Chua until a century later when the Spanish abandoned their missions and their cattle to Creek Indians called Seminoles, moving in from the north. In 1774, the Indians welcomed a young man from Philadelphia named William Bartram. His book, Bartram's Travels, provides one of the earliest descriptions of what he called the Alachua Savannah. We have some of the best records from Bartram of what it was like living in the 18th century, the Seminole villages, where he visited and he described. He described this place as a paradise. He said the people were free and active. They had an abundance of crops. And he said, this is a utopia. And obviously, the world would want to come here, and that's what he was envisioning. But in 1812, the defeat of Chief King Payne by a group of encroaching American settlers led by Daniel Noonan marked the beginning of the end for the Alachua Seminoles. At this point, there was a lot of settlers coming in, so there was a lot of conflict for this area, which finally in 1835 resulted in warfare. The first battle of what became the Second Seminole War took place here on Payne's Prairie, out on the south side when Osceola, with the band of warriors, attacked a, a wagon train of army supplies. Weeks later, the Seminoles used rifles captured in the raid to massacre Major Francis Dade and his troops as they rode north from Fort Brooke near Tampa, beginning the bloody Second Seminole War. In later years, cattle ranching continued on the prairie until in the 1870s, the sink became plugged. The savannah began flooding. For the next 20 years, Lake Alachua, as it was called, was a haven for fishermen and steamboats, until it suddenly drained in 1892, leaving millions of fish rotting in the sun. Then, in the early 1920s, the prairie was divided by a highway. I sometimes jokingly tell people that's probably the largest Indian mound in Florida. When they first were digging on the south side of the basin, they had to make a cut into Boland Bluff and use that dirt that they dug out of that cut. They used that to fill across the prairie for the highway. Well, it turned out that they had tapped into many archaeological sites right there in the bluff and had spread all the artifacts and dirt out on the basin with the fill there. So when you're driving across that prairie on 441, you just <laughs> take a moment's pause and realize you're in 12,000 years of Florida history. Today, the land still bears the scars of a system of dikes and canals built by the descendants of William Camp, a phosphate baron turned cattle rancher who bought the entire prairie in 1906. But in 1950s, a lady named Marjorie Carr started a drive to have the prairie preserved as a wildlife sanctuary and uh, spearheaded the efforts to have it designated in 1963 as the first wildlife preserve in the state. In 1970, the state officially acquired just over 17,000 acres of prairie and surrounding lands. At first, they weren't sure what they wanted to do with it. There was talk of reflooding it and making a big lake and attractions associated with that. There was talk about using some of the old camp's dikes to have a sort of tramways going across the prairie to view wildlife. But fortunately, the Park Service decided to maintain it in its completely natural state. The question became, how do we know what it was? And to 
use for a base, they decided to read Bartram's book and use that as a foundation for their efforts to maintain the prairie in its natural state. It has been handled in so many ways. You know, they wanted to dredge it, they wanted to dam it, they put roads through it. Uh, then they come back and say, well, it's a special area. They try to preserve it. Everything imaginable that has been done in Florida has been done to that bit of land. And so it, it sort of isn't a central focus of of the possibilities of preserving what we have. Because despite the roads, despite the lumbering, and despite the intrusions, it still exists, and we still have it. You can walk out there and have a sense of what Florida originally was. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.